Welcome to our final episode in season two. This is episode six, all about religious pressures and barriers. In this episode, we're discussing the intersection between religion and culture, the importance of religion and culture on our sense of identity, problems that arise within religion, and more. But before we begin, we would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that Divya and I are bringing this podcast to you from Nanawal and Nambri land. We would like to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Nanawal and Nambri people, and their elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We also want to remind our listeners that the views, thoughts and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views, thoughts and opinions of our professions nor of the communities we may be a part of. So back in episode one of this season, we spoke about our cultural identity and some struggles we faced growing up between cultures. And we actually also briefly spoke about dating and weddings during our After Dark episodes in season one. Mm. But often the line between culture and religion is blurred because a lot of our practices or traditions actually stem from religion. Well, in my opinion, culture and religion are two distinct and different concepts, but no doubt the line is very blurred. I think of things like touching the feet of those older than you and folding your hands into a namaste are things that initially arose from religious practices. But I think as we understand the logic or reasoning behind those religious practices, we're able to isolate them from the religion itself and just appreciate or practice them for the symbolism behind it and the benefits they give us without conflating them with the religious beliefs that they arose from. We'll talk a bit more about this, but first I think we should make clear our positions in this discussion in terms of our religious background and stances. So Tanvi, do you strongly align with any particular religion and what has your journey been with religion and culture? I think that's a really good question and I think it's really important that we spend some time talking about where we stand in terms of practicing religion because I think that will inform our perspective and then also what we're going to say in the rest of this episode. But yes, to answer the question, in short, I am not a strong practicing Hindu. I was raised with Hinduism present around me and there's so much that I appreciate about Hinduism as a religion, Mm. like so many stories that I've heard that are just beautiful and I think there's a lot to be taken away from it. But Mm. I guess there's also so much that I don't know and I think it's worth saying that I don't think I felt much of an urge to seek out such information. Mm. When I was younger, I, I did go to these Sunday school classes. <laughs> and in that, in those classes, I learned a bit about Hinduism. And like I enjoyed some of these classes because I felt like they widened my thinking in a way. Mm. But I guess where I stand now, just generally, I'm, I guess I'm at a place of I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not really sure at what point I transitioned from feeling, I guess, certain about the origins of the world mm. to a place where I've become more skeptical. But I guess, yeah, I remember an instance where an auntie had made this comment along the lines of, you know, oh, Tanvi, you should care about this because you're Hindu. Mm. And I had, I guess, made some indication of being a bit unsure about that statement. And she had said, you know, you are Hindu, aren't you? Mm. And I guess I was in this place where I felt that the only response to say was yes. But that was, you know, a few years ago. And now I do still, like, I I still follow some certain customs and traditions. Mm. But I feel like that comes from a place of respect for how I was raised and for my household, rather than, I guess, a place of certainty of my own belief system. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is like really honest, and I think it's a really hard and daunting topic in a way. Like, I think mm. it is a bit scary because you just you want to really be sensitive for the people around you, and also sensitive of religion. But I yeah. think it's also important to still share our own experiences. But yeah, I'm wondering for you, Divya, do you strongly align with any particular religion, and what's your journey been like? Yeah. No. Well, a lot of what you said actually resonated with me, particularly about you know being honest and being scared of that because I honestly debated whether or not I wanted to say this publicly because of a fear of backlash or negative consequences more for my parents than myself. But I think it wouldn't be worth talking about this topic if we weren't honest about where we stood on these issues. So no, I'm also not a strong practicing Hindu. I was definitely brought up to be one. And like you said, I still have a really deep appreciation for Hinduism. But at so many points in my life, I've realized that people within my religion or people around me um, wanted me to serve my religion and religious leaders with no appreciation or acknowledgement of how certain religious practices or beliefs could be harmful, mm. primarily as a woman. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment where I guess I just sort of snapped out of it. And like you said, you know, like the origins of the world, I guess it was really hard for me to then make myself believe that because mm. I just inherently didn't. Yeah. And and there was a moment where I thought you know religion should be serving the people and the people shouldn't be serving the religion Mm -hmm. and I mean that in the sense of like we should all feel better having the strength and support of our religions within us or behind us in making important life decisions and not feel bound or controlled by religion or lose free will or autonomy or independence so yeah I think my journey with culture and religion is strongly tied with my journey as a feminist does the concept of feminism and religion sort of do you see that intertwine a hundred percent I think I guess yeah I, I said that I don't really know when that moment transitioned but as I grew to understand other ways of thinking Mm. that was also when potentially more skepticism or just I started trying to question and understand my way of thinking a bit more but you said that yeah your journey as a feminist is quite enmeshed with yeah so I feel like when I was younger I was conservative and very religious so my parents when they first migrated to Australia found this one temple that offered like you said you know Sunday religious classes (laughs) they found this one temple that offered children classes and they enrolled my brother and I into it thinking that it was a way to bring us closer to our culture and our background but that specific temple that specific sect of Hinduism was so overtly sexist and discriminatory Mm -hmm. that it had the opposite effect in that temple they separated women and men boys and girls and told us that we were inherently different they had this thing called Bal Mandir which is children's temple I guess okay and in that temple they they taught all the kids to be obedient they taught the boys to be confident and they you know put on plays for the pundits at the temple Mm -hmm. um, while the girls girls weren't allowed to do that because these pundits wouldn't even look at women. The whole premise behind this religion was that women or girls are temptations and that boys must resist women to stay pure and true to God, which is just so objectifying and degrading mm. to women. But in that Balaman there, they also taught girls that being good sisters and daughters will give us training to have good fruitful lives later on. So I think it was just really thinly veiled sexism that basically said women's roles were to serve men and that men were totally okay to objectify women. Um, mm. Anyway, then we moved from that temple and from that place and I stopped going there and so I noticed all these problems which arose from that place not only just within that sect but overall the sexism homophobia casteism all of that and that really drove me away from religion at the same time that white Australian society introduced me to feminism so I completely rejected my religion during that time but then again I think as I matured and as the emotions of being stuck in a problematic religious group faded I was able to 
to observe things with a calmer mind. And I realized that the feminism that I was introduced to was white feminism Mm -hmm. and was actually actively pulling me away from my culture and religion because it framed Eastern religions as oppressive. Yeah. You know how we spoke about Bendit Like Beckham in Mm -hmm. one of the earlier episodes? Mm -hmm. We talked about how that painted Indian culture as intrinsically oppressive and showed English or Victorian culture to be much more freeing. I think that's exactly what white feminism is. Mm -hmm. And it took me some time to understand that our religion or culture isn't inherently oppressive. And I only understood that because I had a deeper understanding of what those religious or cultural practices actually entailed and what the practical effect of those were. Um, So I think once I rekindled my relationship with my religion, I gained some appreciation of how they could be feminist or at least empowering to women. But yeah, like you, I'm still very critical and some religious practices, you know, I just can't deal with. And I also don't like being associated with right-wing Hinduism, Mm -hmm. so I just steer clear. Yeah, and I feel like when we are critiquing or even, I guess, looking at certain religious practices, it is hard to sometimes disentangle the religious practice from how much culture has had an impact of it. It's kind of like the chicken or the egg, like what came first? And then I think I've come to this conclusion that it's like a feedback loop. Like you start with whatever, it could be religion or culture, and then it feeds into religion and then it feeds back into culture and then go yeah. and just keeps going and it keeps going and um it's sometimes hard because like when we will be talking about some of these issues some people might argue like you know that's not what the religion says and mm. like i agree we've tried to do some research for sure yeah. before we say certain things we agree that you know sometimes it's not even in the text or in the sacred scriptures yeah. but it's been used like religion has been used as a way to justify so much of it yeah and whether it was actually religion or whether it was culture those those things have become so deeply embedded with one another that it's just hard to disentangle them because just thinking about like where at the times of any I guess sacred text being written some of the traditions or some of the values were I guess functional at that time mm-hmm. right like if you just think about what what were people back in I don't even know what year let's yeah. say BC let's yeah. say right what were people back in that time what was the practices like I know that things have changed right mm-hmm. and that's not just within Hinduism but also within other religions that yeah. things have changed over time because culture has evolved. Yeah. Are, are you aware of sometimes where these lines have been blurred between religion and culture? Yeah, so for me, I you know just told you about that phase where I completely rejected my religion, right? But sorry, mom and dad, I don't think they knew that. During those times, I would still attend all these quote-unquote Hindu festivals, right? Like there was Holi, Diwali, Navratri. They're all very clearly religious festivals rooted in Hinduism. However, they're open for anyone to join and don't necessarily have to include religious prayers or even visiting the temple if you don't want to. So for me, that shifted more to a cultural celebration rather than religious because Holi is a celebration where you like throw colour, right? Yeah. And it's just, it's fun. You like have music playing and you throw colours, like yes. that's it. Um, <laughs> not, no, okay, that's not it. But you know, like if you want it to be, that's what mm. you can attend. Diwali is all about like lighting lamps and doing firecrackers mm. and stuff like that. So again, it doesn't necessarily have to have religious meaning behind mm. it if you don't want it to. And Navratri is dancing and yeah. I freaking love <laughs> dancing. Gurba is a type of dance, Dandi is a type of dance and there's Navratri which is nine nights of the year where we well you dance nine nights yeah. non-stop so you're celebrating the three goddesses and it's like three nights for each goddess or something that's what i know about navratri there's different meanings depending okay. on which part of india you come from yeah the way that i was taught was actually it's celebrating a, like goddess durga mm. um and the symbolism behind it is really interesting because well you're meant to have the goddess in the middle and you dance in circles around it mm. and that's meant to be a symbolism of life and the womb and childbirth wow. <laughs> 
beautiful though. I don't know. It's interesting. That it's beautiful. When I first heard about it, I was like, that's a bit creepy. <laughs> People are dancing in circles and it's the vulva. And then the goddess in the middle is the birth. Like it was just, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if you look into the meaning, <laughs> this meaning, but you don't have to know the meaning to go and dance. Like, you know what I mean? Mm. It can be separated from the religious meaning behind it. Like when you go to Navratri here, especially, you'll see some women wearing hijabs and some guys wearing turbans as well as non-South Asian people there. Mm-hmm. So it makes me feel like it really is a relatively inclusive celebration where everyone just dances together regardless of their religious background. So yeah, that's some of the points where I think the lines are very blurred between is this a religious practice or is it just a cultural practice which people can attend for fun? Well, not for fun, for appreciation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What about you? Do you vibe with that or do you have different? No, I think that is definitely the case. And I think that sometimes that's where the generational gap comes up, yeah. where sometimes I've, I've had chats with friends about this, where like families will be like, you don't appreciate it for the religious function. Like you just think it's a time for fun and celebration. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when you are in this process of like potentially questioning what your beliefs are, it can feel a bit hard because you're just like, you want to enjoy it. You want to celebrate it, but you don't know whether you completely believe in it and Mm. I think that that's I guess where sometimes people will appreciate the cultural components of the religious festival versus the actual meaning behind it. Yeah I think Mm. what you said is totally okay like it's fine but I think sometimes the L generation or people who are more religious get really upset when Mm. when you don't actually appreciate the religious origin of those Mm -hmm. practices. Yeah I guess it like comes from this place of like that's their version of us getting annoyed at cultural appropriation in Mm. a way like when we see someone who isn't South Asian wearing a bin right we're gonna be a bit like you don't even know the meaning you don't even know like that's not yours Mm. right you're just using it as an accessory so that might be like for like Mm. our parents to us where they're like you don't even understand the meaning you just think it's a time to have fun yeah but for them it's really important so i can understand potentially that feeling but i think they should potentially be a bit more understanding of like we are our own people with our own like worldviews and we're also trying to grow up in a world of blending cultures and it's it's hard to know exactly so we might be like this is a fun religious festival Mm -hmm. and we'll know the stories but whether we believe in them that's I think belief is very very personal Mm. and that at the end of the day like you can't force belief upon someone else no exactly do you think it's okay to have a preference for or against a particular religion and I guess we can differentiate this Mm -hmm. in some senses so like with friends or with potential dates or potential partners let's talk about friends first do you think it's okay to have a preference to only be friends with a certain you know with people from a certain religious background in short for friends it doesn't really make much sense to me friendship is something at least for me that I look past religion and personally like I look for friends with similar interests and preferences and attitudes I think that's really important and I don't know though I want to know your stance I completely agree with you. If you have a preference in your friends, then it sort of begs the question, why? Why do you think it's important that your friends follow your religion? Why can't you just be friends with someone of a different faith or culture? Sometimes I feel like when you try and answer the question, why, and you just keep on asking, why, why, why? The underlying answer could be borderline prejudice or Mm. religious discrimination. And so I think why does it matter what religion your friends are? It shouldn't really matter what their beliefs or faiths are as long as their core values do align with yours. As you said, like your interests, your attitudes and stuff like that align, then why does it really matter? Yeah, like I'm sorry, like if I love this sport and I make a friend who also loves this sport, am I going to now inquire, what's your religious background? (laughs) Like, do you know what I mean? Like we have still so much to talk about. 
being in a Western society where there's a lot of diversity, mm. it isn't sustainable yeah. to only try and find friends from your religious background. Like, yeah. I just think that it's hard. Like, how do you maneuver through the world? But I think it's also, well, in this society, I think it's harder for us because we're a minority, right? Mm. The reason why this question came up is because I know people who only have friends that are from their religious background. When I see like a group of friends here who are all from the same background, like I usually don't care. The only times where I do care is when I'm like, oh, this group of like white people is like very exclusive mm. and that's when it's sort of I'm like just why and then you find out that they're all from the same Christian group and you're like <laughs> why are you so exclusive mm. and that's when I sort of question it I, I have seen people who are like that and again it just it makes me feel like why 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 is this so important to you yeah it is an important question to ask but we spoke a little about friends but then also with dating though what, what do you think about that you know people have preferences for religion because I feel like that's when people explicate it more like they actually yeah. let people know about their religion more I think like with friends I feel like there's a lot of friends that I don't even know what their religious background is and yeah. like I don't actually care and yeah. I don't like I and if they told me I'm happy to know but yeah. like I it's not it's not a huge thing but I think with partners and stuff it's definitely a conversation that's had so mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on having a preference for a religion when dating so I think this actually makes sense. I, fe- I feel like it makes sense to have a preference only because for religious people, their religion affects a lot of aspects of their life from morning routines to when they eat, what they drink or whether they drink, when they have free time on weekends, like if you go to church every Sunday or something. And, you know, if you want kids, it affects so much more, like how you raise your mm-hmm. kids and everything like that. And whether they're baptized or whether you take them to Balmandir, like, you know, yeah. how they're raised, whether you send them to a religious school, like there's so many things to take into consideration. So I think it makes sense to want to find someone on a similar wavelength to you and I just want to clarify that the reason why I'm saying this is because I was raised to be religious so you know when I was younger I always thought about when I have my kids well I would have wanted someone who was also Hindu so that I could do those things now I don't care but I see why religion still does matter for that what about you though Dunby do you think having a preference in dating is okay I mean I think it's hard to say for sure whether it's like a right or a wrong thing Simply because I feel like it's entirely contingent on your own personal journey with religion. And yeah, I agree. Like when integrating lives together at a dating or marital level, like religion informs so much. It informs, Mm -hmm. like you said, whether you eat meat, how you want to raise your children, etc. But I guess I personally sometimes raise an eyebrow when people have personal issues with dating across religious groups. Not because they have any issue with that religious group, but because they're just simply adopting the attitudes of their family members. Mm. And like within the South Asian community, I think there is so much divide between certain religious groups and, you know, people who were directly affected by historical wrongdoings, maybe Mm. projecting their anger towards another religious group who was involved. And then I think that division is then passed down generationally. Mm. But I guess I'm coming from a place of being a South Asian living in a Western country. And sometimes I just have a bit of an issue with people adopting the upset that their parents have Mm. and just being scared to date outside of their religion, not because because they have an issue with that religion, but just because they want to conform to the attitudes of their parents, people should be able to have a say of, mm. of who they're dating. And like, that's probably very individualist of me, but I guess it's just like marriage is for life. So you want to be marrying someone you want to marry yeah. and you shouldn't just be like, I'm just going to cut myself off from this religious group based on a stereotype that I've been fed. 
Yeah, but, (laughs) but, (laughs) but I think like this sort of opens the door to talking about intergenerational trauma and that sort of Mm -hmm. things. Like if the violence which your family has suffered has involved another religious group or something, then I can sort of understand, like maybe it's not morally Mm -hmm. right. You know, obviously if you're openly discriminatory, that's wrong. But I understand the feelings of like, oh, I don't want to date someone from that religious background because my family has been through hell and back. Again, maybe that's, again, maybe a blurry line. And I'm saying that very sort of tentatively. Tentatively, yeah. (laughs) I'm unsure about that but when you said like you know that sort of thing I relate this again with culture and with like dating someone non-Indian right wait sorry maybe I should just state my own preference Um, Mm. my preference is I don't really want a partner who's overly religious because I don't want to convert or conform to anything other than what I am and I also don't want to get sucked back into the extreme side of Hinduism that I was in and conform with sexist or otherwise problematic traditions or customs so yeah I think when I relate this to culture I'm actually terrified of you know what if I start really really liking someone who's not Indian I'm not going to stop it from happening just because of the person who I am and Mm. I completely agree with you in terms of like I will love who I love Um, and everyone else just just has to deal with it I'm sorry (laughs) but trying to introduce them to my like parents and my family in the past I have hesitated because I've been like do I want to subject this person, someone who I love, do I want to subject that person to the mm. shitty comments that they're going to get from my family and the the hate from my extended family and like the possibility that they may not ever be accepted by my family? Do I want to subject someone else to that? Like, yeah. And that's been a real question which I've sort of thought about and then I've been like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, my love, my wants. But yeah. yeah. But I think that's, well, one, that's very considerate of you to even think about that. I think I've always just been like, sorry, I love you. You're coming along with me. <laughs> But I think maybe I'm like this idealistic romantic where it's like, you're going to fight for who you love. Yeah. And you're going to like, and it's hard because I think we've spoken about this in previous episodes. It's mm. like No one should be put in that position where they're having to choose between who they love mm. and their family. I think that is the most excruciating position to be in. Mm. Yeah. And I, I agree with the thing is like sometimes when families have had firsthand experience like violence against another religious group I totally get that that's really going to inform and change and shift your judgment Mm. I think it's just harder for me when say you're in a western country and you're exposed to those cultures and those religious groups Mm. and you're friends with those religious groups and you see the beauty and you you're not generalizing one religious group anymore yeah you see that and yet you're still holding on to it I think sometimes I just have that hesitancy about when that happens you know you mentioned the whole like historical religious violence Mm. stuff and just reminds me of Romeo and Juliet I don't know enough about it to comment on that (laughs) but like the South Asian version of that is Leila and Majnu have you heard of that story? No tell me the story so I think the premise behind it was like Leila and Majnu were of different religions Mm. so they were like you know it was a whole typical story of like them wanting to be together and society forcing them apart Mm. and it was just a very sad story in the end both died Um, very similar to Romeo and Juliet sorry spoilers whatever but yes yeah it is really sad when you think about that but I feel like yeah religion is sometimes a very serious thing to consider when it comes to dating and if you feel like you can't fight for your love or you can't fight for that person I personally think it's unfair for you to subject that person to Mm. to hate for no reason again I feel like I'm also a romantic at heart but I feel like if you truly love that person then you would care about them more than anything else bring this back to what you said about like when people say that I'm not going to date someone of a different religion or whatever because my parents don't want me to date it I kind of get that because I'm just sort of like if you think that your parents are going to be judgmental and hateful and like resent this person for the rest of their life then I understand being like I think it's just easier and 
better if I steer clear of that, not only for me selfishly, but also for whoever I choose to mm. end up with. But I also think people can use that as an excuse to be like, I actually don't like this religion, but I'm going to say my parents don't like it. Therefore, yeah. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. 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 I think we spoke a little bit about some of those divides that have happened within religions. And I think that's often to do with, yeah, historical wrongdoings and violence. So, you know, yeah. Hindus and Muslims and India. What else is there? Yeah, there's like Buddhists and Hindus in Sri Lanka are historically have been at it. Muslim and Jewish people in parts of the Middle East. You know, that's yeah. always been conflict for them and i think in general western society we've yeah. seen like christians and the non-christian yeah. community always be triggered by one another mm -hmm. it is important to i guess consider that there are those divides not just within the south asian community but beyond yeah as you said we've got the most knowledge and experience in the south asian community mm. and with hinduism which is why we're talking about it but you can extrapolate what we're saying and apply it to so many different situations mm -hmm. this is the thing right like inherently with belief systems like we tend to steer clear from people that have different beliefs to us mm. because we make assumptions so i think regardless yeah of that historical trauma i think there is something about us as humans which make us more inclined to wanting to be around people with similar beliefs and potentially making judgments about people of other belief systems mm. but i mean i think as a society with more multiculturalism and with more knowledge at our fingertips we're able to question whether these generalizations and assumptions are accurate okay so i often think that the only reason i'm hindu I, and i should clarify i still identify as hindu even though mm. i don't i'm not like overtly religious the only reason why i still consider myself hindu is because i was born into a hindu family and because my parents were religious as a kid, I blindly followed what I was taught. So that makes me feel like if I was born into a Muslim family or a Christian family or a Jewish family, I'd be raised with those religious values. Like I started eventually questioning Hinduism, I would probably eventually start questioning those religious values. So at the end of the day, I think I'd identify with that religion, whatever I was born into versus others. But I think that makes me have a deeper appreciation of, of different religions. And I feel like all these sorts of like, oh, you're Muslim and I'm Hindu and historically we've been at war. I feel like a lot of that sort of mellows down when I'm like, oh, the only reason I'm Hindu is because I was born into the family I'm born into. The only reason you're Muslim probably is because you were born into the family yeah. that you were born into. For me, it's sort of like, we're all human at the end of the day. And mm. it's just a way of dividing humans, right? Like it's mm. just a category which you fit ourselves mm -hmm. into. So, so I know in previous episodes, we spoke about things like red flags within our own backgrounds. And I think a big part of that is, you know, fed into by religion. Mm. So what are some of the problems which you've identified within religion it doesn't only have to be Hinduism can be in general yeah. but specifically in, in your experience one comes up is sexism I guess I will focus more on what I know what I've had more first-hand experience with which is sexism within Hinduism mm. and I guess it's specifically a concern of mine is this notion of women being impure mm. when menstruating oh my god yes and I, I really find that my issue with that is that it just continues this cycle of putting constraints on women's reproductive autonomy and many girls and women are subject to restrictions in their daily lives because when they're menstruating there's these views of them being impure mm. or unclean and so these restrictions on the less extreme and not entering the temple or not entering the puja room which is still extreme right yeah, i think it's still, it's extreme. still extreme
extreme. But when you think about bigger impacts, not entering the kitchen during menstruation, not being able to take a bath, not being able to eat certain food, not being able to even go to school sometimes because there isn't even infrastructure because of how deep this stigma flows. It makes me upset because it's just these restrictions have such tangible impacts. I think my concern with it is that it perpetuates shame towards menstruation, which makes an already difficult time even harder. Mm-hmm. And then I think the question, you know, oh, do do we want to demolish it? Is it worth our time to question or challenge these social taboos about mm-hmm. menstruation? We can't touch it because it's rooted in religious customs. Like, are we still allowed to challenge it? People are being impacted. And I just feel like in so many other domains of religion, we no longer follow certain practices yeah. because they are no longer what our society deem as, say, ethical or helpful. Why is this an exception? And I think it feeds into the patriarchy because it perpetuates other agendas that people have. So religion can just be used as like a token to facilitate that yeah. rather than people really thinking, hey, this isn't practical. This is harmful. I can't express how grateful and thankful I am that you brought that up because Mm. if I had brought that up, I guarantee that the people who know me listening to this would have thought that I come in with my own agenda Mm -hmm. for this, right? But yeah, I have personal experience with that. We used to have this rule where if you're on your period, you're not allowed to go into the kitchen. You're not allowed to touch anyone or anything. Basically, what that means is people can't touch you. You can't hug your kids or you know your mother or anyone. And if you want food, you have to ask someone else to get that food for you. And what they'll do is they'll take the food in a plate or whatever and then put it on the floor. And you have to pick it up from the floor to eat it. And same with glasses of water. You can't have water without asking someone because you're not allowed to go to the tap, which everyone uses. Mm. And it was very, very isolating. Mm-hmm. And... Sometimes I get emotional just thinking about it. It was actually hell. It was like you're being ostracized from your own family. And it's your family who's imposing this on you. And it's just out of your control. Like, yeah. uh, like what do you want me to do? Stop bleeding? I wish I could stop it. Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, but in any other domain where we're just discriminating someone for something that's so much out of their control, it is treating you as subhuman. And, exactly. and like, I've heard the argument of like, oh, like when women are menstruating, they're already going through a burdensome time. So this is why they're not allowed to be in the kitchen or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to do more workload but when I read more about it it's not just that you can't touch water you can't touch a cow because it'll make the cow infertile like Mm. I guess my issue is like sometimes people will hear these things and they'll be like oh but those are the rural communities in India like it's not it's not it's here and the temple stuff is still here and you've literally just given an example of it still happening here I'm just going to say I I haven't I haven't googled this I don't know the stats on it but my opinion is that that is a complete myth in my experience what I've seen is that the small villages in India, women actually have to do everything because they don't have a choice because they're under-resourced. They need to actually get up and do things even when they're sick, even when they're not feeling well generally, let alone when you're menstruating, which Mm -hmm. happens once a month. They can't afford to take five days off. They have to work constantly. So I've seen this only in upper-class families Mm -hmm. or people who consider themselves to be quote-unquote sanskari because they have this like, I I think it's ego. They're like, Mm -hmm. I'm so religious. Look at me. I'm so righteous. Like I follow all these religious things. Anyway, that also reminds me of I don't think this is religious I know Mm. that temples have these rules where menstruating women can't enter the temple which by the way is not only in India I've seen it here as well Mm. the sect I grew up in when I was younger has that Mm. and that's in Australia it's in America like are you kidding yeah even though it is in temples I think it's cultural like I I, the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita doesn't mention this Mm. like this is very obviously man-made yeah and and it's hard it's a way to control women I think yeah yeah 
a way to like continue that narrative of you are inferior. Yeah. So this topic has actually been the cause of a lot of argument in my family. I'm just going to be open and honest Mm. about it because there's no point lying or hiding it. It's been the topic of a lot of argument within my family. And because of that, I've had uh, not only family members, but also just random people who think they have an input in this for some reason, try and justify it and be like, oh, it's not sexist. The way they justify it is they say like, when you're bleeding, things are just more difficult. Not in terms of like, you know, you can't do things, but in terms of like, you need to be hygienic. You need to make sure you're sanitary. Like you need to make sure that like, you know, after you go to the toilet, you have to clean your hands. And obviously, obviously every menstruating person will be like, yes, duh. But like for some reason, they're like, oh, there's a risk because there's more chances of you being dirty than someone who's not menstruating. And so they've tried to justify it, right? And like, it's not sexist because if men got their period, men would also not be allowed in the temple. But I'm like, yeah, but the fact is men don't get their periods. Like I also, I think you were using men and women, but I think we should also acknowledge that, you know, people who don't fit into those categories can also be Mm -hmm. menstruating. You're using these categories, but you're using something which is distinctly part of the female body to be like, oh, this is why you're different. This is why we're discriminating against you. And that's just, how is that not sexist? Please someone explain to me. I know. And it's just, I mean, even that argument that you've mentioned that people make, I just don't get it. You're actually doing the counter. This taboo makes women want to keep it so quiet. They're using old cloths. They don't want to be chucking it out because they don't want people to know that they're on their period. Mm -hmm. They won't be changing as regularly as they should be. So that hygiene risk that you have is greater and maybe won't impact you, but Mm -hmm. it impacts her. Whatever people want to mask it as, it should be questioned and challenged the way that we've done with a lot of other religious customs. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, it's, it's harmful in my opinion. I completely agree. Um, and like I said, I'm like, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> you know, linking this back up to like sexism within Hinduism or within religion, symbols of marriage or symbols of being married. So in Hinduism, when women get married, they have to wear the sindur, which is a red tikka on your, uh, in the parting, in your, like on your, your forehead. Yeah. Um, men don't have to do that. Women also have to wear the mangal sutra, which is a necklace. Mm. Um, and also I think there's some traditions of if their husband has passed you have to you have to wear white white yeah to symbolise always being a widow because that's your identity yeah just a widowed woman yeah so our identities are constantly linked to men when you're unmarried you're I've also um, heard that you know bindis are a sign of married women which um, I don't think holds true anymore because everyone wears bindis yeah. like young girls wear bindis um, and I think there's multiple meanings Vanessa to that as Hudgens well Vanessa Hudgens wears bindis <laughs> <laughs> that, okay. Um, but um but yeah, like I've there was there's always this notion it was like when you're single you can't wear Mangal Sutra, you don't wear Sindur. When you're married, you suddenly wear Sindur in a Mangal Sutra mm. and I think in some sects of Hinduism they have to wear like red bangles when they're newlyweds. Um and then yeah, when your husband dies, you only can wear white. Mm. And I think sometimes they're like, oh, you have to shave your head um, and that sort of thing. So like, why is it that women's identities are constantly connected to the men in their lives? Whereas single men, married men and widowed men, there's no difference between the three. I don't, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I don't, I don't appreciate that in my mind. Like I just, or I guess I just, and look, we are still open to people talking to us about this and Mm. giving us explanations. But I think you have to think a little bit deeper about why is it that a lot of the times like the burden of of something has to be carried by the woman yeah um be that yeah when they're menstruating their behavior has to change Mm. when their partner has passed it's their they have to do something they when they get married they have to do something like it's just a lot of change and i'm sure i don't know there's probably also some customs that men have to do after getting married i don't i think there's some things but the level at which i think is is definitely 
differs across men and women. And I know people justify this by saying like, oh, but back in the day when, you know, India was in war, weird stuff like that. But okay, fine, whatever. Your justification is even if it's valid, it doesn't exist today. Yeah. What's your reason for having this exist today? I know there's so many symbols and and things like that. I think it's just, if you want to follow it, if you believe in it, go for it, go Mm -hmm. ahead. But don't put it on other people. Mm. If someone's like, no, that's not who I am. And I don't want to be seen like that. At the end of the day, religion comes down to your faith, your Mm. belief, your experience. It's just so important not to be pushing your thoughts onto other people. Yeah. I should also say, I completely agree with what you said about religion being super personal to you. Yeah, you have the right to believe in whatever you want to believe in. Like if you want to believe in the flying spaghetti monster, that is your right as Mm -hmm. a human. So go for it. But to consider that the norm and question why people don't follow your beliefs is just if it doesn't affect your life, stay out of it. Yeah, I think, okay, the only time we should be questioning it, which is what we're doing now, is when it's harming people. Yeah. You know, like that. uh, Yeah, that's really important. Moving on to another problem, which we've identified within religion. Another one is homophobia. Yeah. Now, we had an episode about LGBTQIA plus experiences of people in the South Asian community. And I do think we briefly touched on some challenges with having to be religious Mm -hmm. and also a diverse gender or sexual identity. And I guess this is one thing where I'm like in Hinduism, like I think diverse gender and sexual identities have been represented in Hindu ancient and sacred texts. Yeah. And there is no evidence of condemnation of LGBTQIA plus communities within these texts, yet such condemnation exists. And I feel like religion is used inappropriately so as a means to perpetuate this discrimination. I feel like for other religions, again, Christianity comes to mind only because I grew up, you know, with friends who were Christians. The distinction might be a lot clearer in terms of like what the Bible says about it or whatever. But in Hinduism, it's like, well, if you're really a Hindu and if you've read like our texts and stuff like that, like let's just say the Kama Sutra is a Hindu text. (laughs) It's like an actual religious text. Mm. So if you take that for what it says, well, then we've always been accepting of diverse identities. We've always been accepting of trans people, why is that suddenly a religious issue now? And I actually think it's not a religious issue. It's been taught to us by colonialism <laughs> you got it but yeah seriously i feel like it's like it's it's not a hindu idea it's it's been taught to us by a different religion mm-hmm. and somehow we've internalized that and now some people are proud about the fact that we're not like that we're proper hindus you know yeah like no you're not because if you had read the text you would be open to these identities mm. At its core, Hinduism and a lot of religions might actually be accepting of these communities. Mm. But for some reason, the way the religion has progressed and the way it's become man-made with particular people at the top, religious figures at the top, they've introduced this idea of homophobia or queerphobia. I think we've spoken about religion also has so much other values about like loving everyone and loving thy neighbor and and things like that. And um, we'll talk more about that because there are very good aspects of religion. But Mm. like, it's just interesting how sometimes love thy neighbor gets put to the back burner in priority of this other queerphobia yeah queerphobia thing Um, yeah yeah but doubling down on hinduism i feel like we're more comfortable talking about hinduism because i feel like it's easier for us to critique our own background or something that we still identify with as opposed to something else because i feel like what we don't want this to come off as is us attacking anyone or anything Mm. like that's not the purpose of this podcast anyway talking about hinduism specifically i feel like one issue which I know exists within other religions, but probably not to the extent that it exists in Hinduism is casteism. 
Yeah. I want to know your experience with caste system or what you think of, of that idea. Yeah. Just to define the caste system is simply yeah, dividing up society into a hierarchy according to professions and trades and individuals are assigned a caste at birth based on the caste of their parents. Mm. And like there's very limited social and occupational mobility. So in terms of, you know, you can't just become a different caste because you want to become one. Can can I interrupt yeah. there? But what pisses me off is that there's sexism within casteism mm-hmm. because, you know, you just said social mobility is not allowed. But if you're a woman and you marry a man of a different caste, mm. your caste automatically changes to whatever that man's oh, caste is. Yeah. But if you're a man and you marry a woman of a different caste, your caste doesn't change. So a man mm. is always solid. He's always him. Mm. But a woman's identity continuously changes depending, yeah, yeah. depending on the men in her life. It is worth noting, though, that there is an element of culture involved in the presence of a caste system. Mm. I think I was trying to do some research because I was like, what is it? Like, does Hinduism tell us, right, that this is the caste system? Mm. And I think it started with a way of like, we need roles assigned to different people in this society, right? So it was like functional. It was a way to distribute labor. But then it became very rigid. And now we're only going to start treating people who do these roles as better. And we'll have now this group of untouchables and Mm. it becomes all messy. And I was reading that some people argue that Hinduism has casteism in it. But then I was also reading stuff that because Hinduism and the caste system are both predominantly found in India, Mm. there's this common misconception that caste system is part of Hinduism, Mm. but it's not necessarily the case. So the caste system is related to Indian culture Mm. and not directly linked to the teachings and practices of Hinduism. So the Hindu term Varna describes a social order as a framework of moral duties, but the Indian caste system reflects a person's group assigned at birth. So now those two systems have become intertwined. Uh, You mentioned that, you know, people are categorized based on the job that they do or their Mm. profession, and that's how the caste system was Mm. created. Another thing which I was sort of taught was that, but it was also a way to be sustainable because you had, for example, the warriors or the tradesmen, Mm -hmm. and then you had priests or educators. And priests and educators were traditionally vegetarian. The reason for that was so that the meat could be saved for the people who did the physical tasks. Mm. It was a way to make sure that we live a sustainable lifestyle. But yeah, I think you're right. Like then when you then suddenly say, oh, a priest's son must become a priest and a tradesman's son is only a tradesman and he can't change profession. Well, then like, come on, (laughs) are you serious? Like that doesn't, Mm. it's not realistic. Yeah. Um, And I guess like slowly the problems with the caste system have unveiled itself. But I think it's still seen within our local communities in Australia where I know people firsthand who aren't allowed to date across castes. Um, So like families are just like, no, you can't date a person of a different caste. I am not sure, though, what the rationale often is. And I'm not sure whether you ever heard something like that and what explanation you received for that. I have. And people have tried to justify it in different ways. But just every time I try and like understand their justification for it, I'm like, you really are just discriminatory. And maybe you're just your ego is getting in the way of you understanding that my child's love matters more than cost. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I often feel like it's an ego. Like, oh, we are Brahmins. Therefore, mm. we will only accept a Brahmin daughter-in-law. daughter-in-law. Yeah. yeah. Like, why Why does it matter to you that much? Like, if your daughter's happy with someone, well, she's happy. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens with the discrimination generally. It, like, completely ignores all the other characteristics that make a person a person. Someone can be so smart, special, wonderful, beautiful, but because they're of a different caste, all the things that make them them are ignored for the sake of caste. Mm. And I think... I have a real issue with that. 
Yeah. No, I agree. I definitely think it's still very visible here as well. Like, I keep on thinking about Seema doing Indian matchmaking. Mm. I actually can't recall if there was a particular person who had, like, cast preferences. But even if it wasn't uh, shown in the show, I know it definitely exists because I've seen it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and even, like, oh, my God, Shally.com was a massive thing. And you know mm. how, like, to relate to people who may not know Shally.com, if you go on Hinge, it's like, what's your preference? And mm. what's your age? And what's your age range that you're looking for? Mm. And does really didn't matter to you and all this stuff. One of the things on Shadi.com mm. was what's your cast and what cast do you want? Really? Like mm. it really matters to you that much that your future husband or wife is of the same cast as you. Yeah. I mean, I've had conversations where it's like sometimes people view cast as like similar to like how we were speaking about religion in terms mm. of like certain casts don't eat meat. So it's mm. like, I want someone of that, but I, I don't, I do think you can get someone who doesn't eat meat who isn't a certain cast. Have you seen those yoga girls? They're like vegan. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, just go for a vegan. You'll be good. If that's your only criteria, yeah. I think you'll just need a date of vegan. You're good. Yeah. But also, <laughs> the justification I have heard is like, yeah, people from different castes have different lifestyles to us and they just live life differently to us. They don't follow the same customs we do. So it's just easier if you date someone from the same caste. And I feel like, again, when you zoom out, same mm. thing can be said about religion same thing can be said about culture you know we said like we want people to take shoes off at the door it's mm-hmm. like we don't want to have to explain ourselves in full to someone who doesn't understand us so I can understand that reasoning but I actually don't think that's a valid reasoning because people from different castes do have similar lifestyles especially as immigrants mm-hmm. like come on like well, we all are on the same boat no yeah. pun intended <laughs> but yeah, yeah. and I had a conversation with someone who's actually not even South Asian but we realized that our cultures and our practices and our lifestyles at home are very similar mm-hmm. so I'm like if someone who's of a completely different background than me are so similar in our lifestyles how can you say like oh no there's a very strong difference between castes like yeah mm. I mean we've spoken a little bit about the problems but I do think it is still worthwhile to acknowledge some of the good things about religion because I know we sound a bit upset but I think we have justifiable reason to be because yeah. these are things that I think harmfully affect people yeah um, but my question is though can religion do good? Yeah. Well, I think everything we've talked about, they're valid critiques and we're critiquing because there's room for improvement, right? Yeah, maybe a lot of these stories come from personal stories of hurt. But yeah, I mean, I feel like they're valid criticisms and that doesn't mean that we're not Hindu or that we're not religious. So yeah, I definitely think there's so much good which religion can do and that we've seen religion do. Love thy neighbor. You said that. Like, that's such a good teaching from it. So there's definitely good teachings about it. And one that's affected me personally is, you know, we've always spoken about the sense of community, whether that comes down to religion or culture. I'm not sure, but... But social support from our community is such a great gift. Look, like I said, you know, when my parents first migrated to Australia, they were drawn to that temple. And it's because they found a sense of belonging there. Mm. That was their place to feel like most like themselves. So I think that sense of community is really, really valuable. And I think that's such a great thing that religion can do. Yeah. And I think like one thing is like, I I know we briefly mentioned that sometimes religious leaders might exploit people's (laughs) beliefs in in a way to garner a following. Mm. But I do think that religious leaders play many different roles Mm. in a community they're like a psychologist and and a priest and this and I think that's kind of wonderful because sometimes if you're faced with all this other stigma about mental health if you can have a place in a religious community where you can feel like oh I will receive emotional and practical support Mm. like I think that that can create a real sense of security Um, so I think that's a wonderful part of religion I agree I think sometimes like um, religious places like churches and temples can be safe houses Mm -hmm. you feel safe in that environment yeah and that is again an invaluable feeling so Mm -hmm. definitely 
Okay, so we spoke about this with casteism. I actually think South Asian religions like Buddhism and Hinduism promote this idea of sustainability. And, you know, I know that Hinduism and Buddhism may be problematic in parts in the modern day, but I think at their core, both of them try to show us a more sustainable way of life. So, yeah, I feel like if we really did stick with those founding principles, then we would probably not be in the position we are in with climate change. <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah, I feel like they do show us a, a more sustainable way of life. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, religions do try to sway us away from violence. Yeah. I'm laughing because it's just that there's so much violence that has happened because of religion. But I think it's because of people misusing religion. Yeah. If we read deeply into what all those texts are saying, I'm sure that a common theme is not to hurt people. Yeah. And I think religion really does teach that. Yeah. I just wish more of us followed it. Oh, okay. So it looks like we can, and we rightfully should, consider and and evaluate religion and cultural practices. And we should look out for some of the red flags or areas that need improvement, like sexism, queerphobia, casteism, or other social ills. But having said that, there is a fair bit that we can learn from each religion and culture too. I think like with anything else, there's always good takeaways which you can take from every religion and every culture. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore the bad things either. I think our criticisms are legit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we found talking about all these aspects of religion and culture is that there is intermingling between these two concepts. And these two concepts really do deeply affect our sense of identity and belonging and can sometimes be the precursors to some of the cultural issues we spoke about during this season. Yeah, the ties between religion and queerphobia definitely cannot be denied and culture and queerphobia and and even things like our learned colorism have some sort of connection to casteism and therefore religion. And, you know, even how we show love to our families is also linked with culture and religious backgrounds that we come from. So, you know, some ways that people show love may be, you know, praying together or showing up at the temple, mosque or church together. I think it's all connected in one way or the other. I think we've got some good takeaways from this episode it's our last one for this season uh time has passed so quickly once again i can't believe this is the end of season two but as they say all good things must come to an end yeah to our listeners thank you so much for your support throughout this season yes thank you we really could not have come back for a second season without your love and support we really hope that you enjoyed listening to the season as much as we enjoyed creating it and i think i can speak for the both of us when i say that we've really been challenged by this season and have grown together and as individuals over this experience but for now i think it's time to say goodbye for the last time in season two these are your hosts divya and tanvi signing off bye bye